A heads up before we get going. This is a grown-up story about prison. It describes violent acts, including sexual assault. It's not for kids, and it may not be for all adult listeners. The U.S. Department of Justice says Alabama's prisons are so dangerous, they violate the Constitution. And they say a big part of the problem is overcrowding. U.S. justice officials say Alabama's prisons are overflowing with people, and that overcrowding breeds violence. The allegations are part of a lawsuit that could lead to federal oversight if conditions don't improve. The crisis didn't happen overnight. A lot of it can be traced to sentencing laws passed decades ago, when America was getting tough on crime. Another woman has been raped and murdered. This is a campaign ad from the 1970s. A man named Charlie Graddock was running for attorney general of Alabama. We see Graddock in an alleyway, standing near the chalk outline of a body. As your attorney general, I'll seek the death penalty for cold-blooded murder, and I'll apply the law fairly and uniformly. We've got to wipe out crime before it wipes us out. Charlie Graddock, a man of conviction. The campaign worked. Graddock served two terms as Attorney General of Alabama. During that time, Alabama passed some of its strictest sentencing laws. The same thing was happening across the country. Lots of prosecutors were getting elected with the same promise— to lock up the bad guys, and there was pressure to keep them locked up longer. The combination created a prison system in Alabama that's now bursting at the seams. From WBHM in Birmingham, this is Deliberate Indifference, the story of Alabama's prison crisis and the people inside it. I'm Mary Scott Hodgen. In this episode, we hear from men who've spent decades behind bars, They were sentenced during America's tough-on-crime era, which continues to shape Alabama's prison population. Ron McKeithen grew up in Birmingham, in a neighborhood called Titusville. He remembers breaking rules at an early age. This is a store called Atlantic Mills. Atlantic Mills was a department store popular back in the 60s and 70s. McKeithen would go there often with his mom and his grandmother. I remember um, I've seen my mother and my grandmother shoplift. They was kind of, you know, some of them was kind of smooth with it or whatever, but, you know, kids know this stuff. And so, shoot, I started stealing hot cars. He stole Hot Wheels. One day, he says his grandmother got caught shoplifting. McEthan started getting caught for stuff, too. But that just led to another strings of going to family court or going to juvenile for other little things like, you know, uh, parking meters, car theft, trespassing. Things were rough at home. McKeithen says his mom was addicted to alcohol. He would try to stop her from drinking. One time when he tried to intervene, she stabbed him. McKeithen started skipping school. He got kicked out when he was in the 10th grade, and he started using drugs. And then the street swallowed me up, you know. When he was 18, Ron McKeithen got his first felony conviction, third-degree burglary. The next year, he was convicted of illegal possession and fraudulent use of a credit card. McKeithen got those first felonies not long after Alabama passed a law called the Habitual Felony Offender Act. Laws like this are often referred to as three strikes laws because a third felony triggers a harsher prison sentence. 
Alabama's three strikes law passed in 1977, just after the state's prison system was put under federal supervision. Some considered the law to be one of the strictest in the nation. Back in Birmingham in 1983, Ron McKeithen and a friend robbed a convenience store. They stole a few hundred dollars from two men working in the store. McKeithen and his friend were armed, but no shots were fired. No one was physically injured. Still, the crime was a violent Class A felony. And because he had those priors, the burglary and the credit card convictions, it was Ron McKeithen's third strike. He was 21 years old. When the judge, when I went to sentencing, you know, I was really, still really like not even believing that I actually, you know, got convicted. And so when the judge sentenced me to life without parole, and he really said that he regretted having to do this to me that young. And even then, I didn't really have the full understanding of what life without parole meant. McKeithen says he's still trying to make sense of it. Oh, man, my hope, not just my hope, but my faith in God would, would waver. Because I knew I didn't deserve, I knew I deserved to be in prison, but I didn't deserve to be in there that long with that sentence. But I just got caught up in a political area where the habitual Fenelac was just strong then. And the DAs was just trying to, you know, they were just locking them up. When Ron McKeithen was sentenced to life without parole, the country was beginning a new era of criminal justice. In the decade that followed, states passed laws focused on people considered to be habitual offenders. They passed other requirements, like mandatory minimums, that made sentences longer and longer for crimes like drug possession. Judges had less flexibility on sentencing. And the prison population exploded. And so how did we get here? Well, we got here by applying theories of sentencing that are very harsh and are consistently applied differently to white and black Americans. This is Marta Nelson. She studies sentencing at the Vera Institute of Justice. The nonprofit works on reforms to make the justice system more accountable. In the decades before those tough sentencing laws passed in the 1970s and 80s, Nelson says there was brutal violence across the United States targeting people of color. It was really still a lot of extrajudicial punishment. Obviously, lynchings, other forms of extrajudicial control of black bodies. During the century after the Civil War, there were bombings and mob violence. White crowds lynched thousands of black people across the country. A lot of these crimes are detailed in a report by the Equal Justice Initiative, a legal nonprofit that also maintains a memorial to lynching victims in Montgomery, Alabama. Many white people defended this racial violence, They said it was protection from so-called dangerous black criminals. Marta Nelson says the civil rights movement changed things. It ended the era of Jim Crow, a set of legal and social norms that codified anti-black discrimination and segregation. But Nelson says racism and fear didn't go away. So then when you get to the civil rights movement in the 1960s and for the first time the sort of discrimination under color of law is removed. So, you know, at least on the books, all races are to be treated the same. That's when you see punishment become more severe. 
Nelson says something else was happening around this time. Crime increased. From the 1960s through the 1970s, she says the homicide rate in the United States nearly doubled. And during that period, really there's fear-mongering that takes hold. Um, Media starts reporting increasingly salacious and race-baiting stories about crime, and law and order advocates seize this moment to call for harsher and more certain punishments. Nelson says people were scared. They wanted less crime. And back then, some of the nation's top politicians focused on drugs. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. That's President Richard Nixon speaking during a press conference in 1971. In the decades that followed, across the country, police arrested more people on drug charges. Prosecutors filled up courtrooms. And tougher sentences meant the prison population started increasing. This country now has more people in prison than ever before. 283,000. With 454,000 people behind bars. More convicts behind bars now than ever before. More than a half million across the country. By 2009, more than 1.5 million people were locked up in state and federal prisons. Over the course of four decades, the incarcerated population in the United States increased by almost 700%. And this had a bigger impact on some communities than others. Here's a news report from 1990. Some figures out tonight tell a shocking story of a new lost generation of Americans, young black males. Young black males, incarcerated at a disproportionate rate. It's a disparity that continues today. Data from 2018 show that black men across the nation are incarcerated at a rate of more than five times that of white men. Hispanic people are also incarcerated at a disproportionate rate. Here in Alabama, black people make up about a quarter of the general population. But according to the state prison system, more than half of the people incarcerated are black. Police decisions impact court decisions, which in turn impacts prison admissions. Thaddeus Johnson is a senior research fellow for the Council on Criminal Justice, a nonprofit think tank. He's also a former police officer. Johnson says racial disparities in the prison population reflect issues beyond the justice system. It's deeply suited racial inequities in our our society, and certain groups bear the brunt of these inequities more than others. He points to the fact that Black Americans are more likely than white Americans to live below the poverty line. Predominantly Black communities have fewer resources and less access to economic opportunities and health care. All of these things are connected. You talk about the cumulative nature of disparity. People think disparity is just one thing. Disparity is so cumulative, and before you even get to the police. He says because of these inequities, people of color are more likely to come into contact with law enforcement. Because police are concentrated in neighborhoods that tend to be black and brown and socioeconomically disadvantaged because it has conditions that's right for crime. Johnson says people in these communities are more likely to get arrested for the same crimes that happen in other neighborhoods, like low-level drug crimes. He says they can face racial bias by police or prosecutors, and they're less likely to afford pretrial bail or an attorney. All of these things come together to cause black and brown people to spend more time behind bars. Johnson says this cycle also creates distrust between black communities and the police, which can make it harder to investigate and solve violent crimes like homicides. Looking back, it was clear that the country's prisons 
could not keep up with the growing prison population. Here's a news report from 1981. 29 states are under court mandates to do something about prison overcrowding. Convicts in Texas are sleeping in tents. Wisconsin wants to send some of its prisoners to Minnesota, where there is more room. Prisoners sleeping in tents. Court mandates to resolve overcrowding. Forty years later, there are still too many people in Alabama's prisons. As a result, officials are using space in new ways. Former gyms in some of the state's prisons are now dormitories, where sometimes hundreds of men live and sleep. The problem overflows into county jails, too. State inmates often spend months there, waiting to be transferred to state prisons. The delay got worse during the pandemic. The growing prison population has also created a hefty price tag. In the past two decades, the Alabama Department of Corrections budget has tripled. Today, Alabama spends more than twice as much on prisons as it does on public health and mental health combined. The U.S. Justice Department says overcrowding is one of the biggest problems inside Alabama's prisons. Justice officials say holding more people than a facility can handle contributes to an overwhelming amount of violence. And this is something that leaders of the prison system have been pretty open about. During a tour of Bibb County Correctional Facility in March of 2020, the commissioner at the time, Jeff Dunn, showed me a few dormitories where men are stacked in bunk beds. And he started talking about conditions at other prisons around the state. He said at one facility, there's a mass dormitory where more than 300 men live and sleep. It's a converted canning plant. And you walk in and it's just this expansive room that it's obvious from when you walk in that you can only see maybe one or two rows back. If there's five, six rows of double bunks, And so it can be exceptionally challenging, even if you do have enough staff that's moving in and out of that facility to see everything. And and I think you gotta keep in mind that um, there are places where inmates are actively trying to do things that we don't want them doing. This is all detailed in a 2019 report by U.S. Justice officials. The report found inside these big dormitories across the state, men have tied people up and raped them. They often hide cell phones and homemade weapons. Some men get high and pass out. And violence isn't the only problem brought on by overcrowding. During a pandemic, attempts at social distancing are nearly impossible in dormitories housing upwards of 100 people. The thing about overcrowding is that everyone seems to agree that it's a problem, but they almost never agree on what to do about it. One option is to build more prisons, which is what states across the country did during the 80s and 90s. But that doesn't address the source of the problem, which takes us back to sentencing. In recent years, there have been efforts across the country, including in Alabama, to roll back some of the harsh sentencing laws passed decades ago. But it's complicated. Bennett Wright has been studying Alabama's prison population for more than a decade, He's the executive director of the state's Sentencing Commission. Wright will be the first to tell you, it can be hard to find common ground. People are rarely ambivalent when you discuss criminal justice, and they're never ambivalent when you start talking about sentencing. People have very, very strong feelings, either either based on personal experiences or, or really based on perceptions, what they've seen, what they've heard. 
Popular culture surrounds us with images of crime and violence. Some of the most popular TV shows, movies, and podcasts are about crime. And some people are victims of violent crime. These experiences and stories can shape our feelings and opinions. Wright says all of that makes sentencing reform difficult. I think that's why a lot of times people look elsewhere in the system to make changes rather than coming back to sentencing because sentencing is so is such an emotionally charged policy issue. I've watched Alabama lawmakers debate sentencing laws, and this rings true. Things can get emotional, and they can also be reactive. Sentencing reform has support until there's a sensational crime all over the news. Going back to the early 2000s, some lawmakers were getting worried about Alabama's growing prison population. They were concerned about the growing costs of incarceration and the possibility of federal intervention. So Alabama created a group called the Sentencing Commission to study overcrowding and state sentencing laws and come up with ideas to improve the system. After a few years, the group developed new guidelines, rules for who should go to prison and how long they should stay. Part of the idea was to stop sending as many people to prison for low-level nonviolent crimes, like minor theft and drug offenses. Instead, to use other forms of punishment, like supervised release rather than time behind bars. It took a while to convince judges and prosecutors, but in 2013, Alabama made these guidelines presumptive, which means they were mostly mandatory. And Bennett Wright says it worked. The prison population began to fall on October 1st, 2013. That was the first day of implementation of the presumptive guidelines. For the first time in decades, Alabama started to lock up fewer people. The state was also letting more people out on parole, and it passed a law that made some felonies less severe. So the prison population dropped by over 20% in five years, which is very substantial. In terms of overcrowding, it was progress, and the trend lasted for a few years. But then something happened, a case that put the spotlight on the corrections and justice system, a triple murder, allegedly involving someone who was out on parole. After a break, more about the case that would turn Alabama's parole system inside out. You're listening to Deliberate Indifference from WBHM in Birmingham. Deliberate Indifference is a production of WBHM, NPR News for the Heart of Alabama. We rely on listener donations for much of what we do, including this podcast. If you want to support this work and inspire future reporting, give now. You can donate at deliberateindifference.org. This is a grown-up story about prison. It details violent acts, including sexual assault. It's not for kids. And it may not be for all adult listeners. This is Deliberate Indifference. I'm Mary Scott Hodgen. Before we go any further, I want to explain a little bit about parole. If sentencing is the gateway to prison, parole is one of the exits. If you get paroled, you leave prison before the end of your sentence, and you have to follow certain rules. These days, Alabama does not release as many inmates on parole as it used to, which means fewer people are leaving prison, which impacts overcrowding. It's one of the reasons Bennett Wright says people should pay more attention to parole. 
Wright directs Alabama's Sentencing Commission. In states that have parole, usually the ultimate determinant of when people get out of prison is a small number of people that serve on the parole board. For most cases, especially those individuals that serve very long sentences, they are the ultimate determinant of when people are released from, from really prison. Obviously, a component to any release decision is that of public safety. But sometimes, things go horribly wrong. In the summer of 2018, a triple murder case put the spotlight on a small city in northern Alabama. Gunnersville hadn't had a murder in, I don't remember exactly, but it had been years. Tommy James is a lawyer who worked on this case. Small town known for fishing. You know, they have the best fishing anywhere in the country. Just good people, good lake town, and it it was shocking. A 74-year-old woman was strangled and stabbed to death at her home in Gunnersville. Her 7-year-old great-grandson died from blunt force trauma. Their neighbor, a 65-year-old woman, was also murdered, allegedly after being hit with the blunt side of a hatchet. The story was all over the news. The media up there obviously ran with this story, and pretty quick, some reporters up in Huntsville that cover the, that area um, realized something, something, something was wrong here, something was seriously wrong. In July of 2018, police arrested a man named Jimmy O'Neill Spencer and charged him with the three murders in Gunnersville. They allege it was a robbery gone bad. According to state officials, Spencer was out of prison on parole at the time. In the months leading up to the crime, he had violated his parole several times, but had not been taken back into custody or sent back to prison. The state's victims' advocacy group was outraged, and politicians responded. Keep in mind, when all of this was happening, Alabama's prison population was at its lowest point in years, thanks in part to sentencing reform and more people getting out on parole. But the next year, in 2019, lawmakers restructured the parole department. Alabama's Governor Kay Ivey appointed someone new to take over the agency. Well, Governor Kay Ivey has appointed former Alabama Attorney General Charlie Graddock to serve as director of the Board of Pardons and Paroles. The same Charlie Graddock who served two terms as state attorney general. As your attorney general. Who ran on a platform of locking up the bad guys and keeping them in prison. Forty years later, he's back. We've got to wipe out crime before it wipes us out. Charlie Graddock, a man of conviction. Graddock refused repeated requests for an interview while he was director of the parole department. During his 15 months on the job, Graddock shut down parole hearings for more than two months. He said the parole board wasn't giving crime victims enough notice, and he wanted to change the system. Right before parole hearings started back up, Graddock spoke publicly at a press conference. I want to thank you all for being here today. He answered Uh, questions and talked for about 30 minutes. Graddock told reporters that the parole board had to be really careful about who they let out. He said it wasn't the parole board's job to fix prison overcrowding. I cringe when people say, well, it costs so much to keep somebody in prison. Then Graddock said something that gets at the heart of what makes sentencing reform so difficult. Anybody in here lost a loved one to a crime? And, and, and what about a woman? who has wrestled to the ground and raped 
think of the psychological and mental and emotional harm that that has caused, not only to her, but all of her family members and some friends. So the cost of housing somebody is not going to be our priority. Period. Charlie Graddick led the Bureau of Pardons and Paroles for about a year. Before he took office, the state was granting about 50% of paroles. During Graddick's tenure, the parole board reviewed fewer cases and granted about 20% of them. Graddick resigned from the position in November of 2020. And since then, the rate has declined even more. The state granted 15% of paroles in fiscal year 2021. And there's a racial disparity. That 2021 data show white people were granted parole at more than double the rate of black people. The chair of the state parole board, Lee Gwathney, did not respond to an interview request. Low parole rates mean fewer people are leaving prison. So in 2019, after years of decline, the prison population started to tick back up again. Here's Bennett Wright with the Sentencing Commission. In the realm of public policy, you know, the pendulum swings some of the time. You know, and a lot of time that pendulum swings rapidly, particularly in heated moments. For decades, Alabama's prison population went in mostly one direction. It increased rapidly, starting in the early 1980s, while federal courts took control of the state prison system. By the early 2000s, Alabama's prison population had quadrupled in size. The growth continued until around 2013. That's when judges started using the state's new sentencing guidelines. After that, Alabama's prison population declined for a few years. Most recently, the population has fluctuated. It's gone up because of low parole rates and dropped because of the pandemic. But the system is still overcrowded. According to recent data, Alabama's prison system houses more than 150% of the population is designed for. Overcrowding is a big part of the U.S. Justice Department's contention that Alabama is violating prisoners' constitutional rights. But federal officials have not demanded changes to Alabama's sentencing laws. They did not order the state to lock up fewer people. Since the Justice Department released its first report about Alabama's prison system, there have been some discussions about sentencing reform. Lawmakers debated a few related bills, but most attempts at reform have been unsuccessful. Remember the Habitual Felony Offender Act? Some people call it Alabama's Three Strikes Law. Well, it's still on the books, and it continues to affect people's lives. We met Ron McEthan earlier in our story. He's the man who was sentenced to life without parole in 1984 for armed robbery. So we found out about Ron's case in late 2019. Carla Crowder runs a legal nonprofit called Alabama Appleseed. A few years ago, she learned about Ron McKeithen from a writer named Beth Shelburne. Crowder filed a petition for what's called sentencing relief. She got support from the local prosecutor and the victims of the crime, two men in a convenience store. And in December of 2020, a judge approved the petition and ordered Ron McKeithen to be released from prison. He'd served 37 years of a life without parole sentence. He was 58 years old. Crowder says today, 
Alabama's habitual offender law is not as harsh as it once was, thanks to some sentencing reforms. But those changes were not retroactive. And that life-without-parole sentence McEthan got back in 1984, Crowder says things are different now. If Ronald had been sentenced today, he would receive probably a 20-year sentence, a 15- or 20-year sentence that would have been turned into a split sentence, so maybe three to five years to serve. Three to five years in prison, the rest on supervised release. Ron McEthan spent nearly 40 years behind bars. Right, we still need to fix the Habitual Felony Offender Act. Crowder says there are still hundreds of people like Ron McEthan, men over the age of 50, serving life or life without parole under the Habitual Felony Offender Act, for crimes that would yield much shorter sentences today. She says lawmakers need to create a legal avenue for these men to leave prison. It doesn't make sense to keep the oldest people who are rehabilitated and who all of the evidence shows are least likely to reoffend, and that cost a ton in medical care locked in our unconstitutional prisons. We still need a bill. Well, this is House Bill 107, and what it seeks to do is repeal the Habitual Felony Offender Act in Alabama. And During the 2021 legislative session, one Alabama lawmaker, Democratic State Representative Chris England, tried to get rid of the law altogether. England is a former prosecutor and chair of the state's Democratic Party. When he got up to debate this bill, he was prepared for a fight. The most vocal opponent was Republican Representative Matt Simpson, also a former prosecutor. Simpson said the three strikes law is still an important option in some cases. But there, but there are situations, and you have victims of crime that are comfortable knowing that someone will never get out, that they don't have to worry about whether they're going to show up at a parole hearing 15 years down the line. If somebody has three Class A's and commits a murder, that family member can say... That person there were a few hearings with back-and-forth debate, arguing about potential sentences with and without the habitual offender law. At one point, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Jim Hill, cut off the debate. And again, you're jumping. And again, I'd like to finish my question. Let me, like, let me just say this. Y'all, I'm, 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 hang on just a second, everybody. I think we're getting to a point where all we're doing is arguing. And that's when Representative England made a final plea. We serve longer for every criminal offense in just about every state in the union. So, again, I don't want anybody to walk away from this situation saying that taking away habitual offender, which, by the way, did not exist, it's not, has not been in existence forever. So because habitual offender exists, we have, we have gotten addicted to it, as if it's the only way we can manage our criminal justice system. The bill did not pass. England tried again in the 2022 session, but to no avail. While lawmakers were debating in Montgomery, I got several phone calls from Jim George. All I've got to hope for is they change the law. That's the prayer I've got. George is incarcerated at Donaldson Prison. He was sentenced to life without parole under the Habitual Felony Offender Act in 1982. George's earliest convictions include grand larceny. He was also convicted of sexual assault, a crime he denies. He was later convicted of a string of mostly second- and third-degree burglaries. George has been incarcerated for more than 40 years. He pays attention to what lawmakers talk about, 
the reform bills they consider. He often gets hopeful they'll make some change that will give him a second chance. You know, they, every year, for the last 20, I know, they've been saying something up until the legislature meets. And then all the bull comes out about the, the danger that's involved, uh, people whose families were injured in some way, one of them killed or a woman raped or a child kidnapped. And then they all jump right on that, trying to scare the public. At 72 years old, George says osteoporosis forces him to use a wheelchair to get around prison. He has tremors and says he's been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. George says he tried for a medical furlough, but was told he's ineligible because of the sexual assault conviction from 1974. Jim George knows Ron McEthan, who was released in December of 2020. They lived in the same dorm at Donaldson Prison. George says he was happy to see McEthan leave. He says it gives him hope that he might get out one day, too. What I don't understand it's why more people outside don't get involved in this. The uh, the groups that are trying to do something out there today to help inmates, help get them out. There's not that many of them. And we need a lot more. I feel like crying sometimes, just thinking about this shit. The Sentencing Commission's executive director, Bennett Wright, says sentencing reform is not only emotional, it's subjective. I think there's a lot of things that we don't agree on. One, who should go to prison and how long should they serve? You know, those, those are two simple questions it's going to be very difficult. And like I said, this isn't Alabama. This is everywhere. Those are very nuanced questions. Who goes to prison? How long do those individuals stay? Today, many Alabama lawmakers say they've addressed sentencing reform. And compared to a decade ago, there are fewer people in prison for many lower-level crimes, like drug possession and theft. But there are still roughly 20,000 people in Alabama's prisons, about 1,500 of them are serving life without parole. Unless something changes, they'll never leave prison. The vast majority of people in prison now don't benefit from most sentencing reforms. That's because 80% of them are there for crimes classified as violent, so they're not eligible. Here's Bennett Wright. Sentencing reform in the last 10 to 15 years predominantly always was restricted to nonviolent offenses. And people went out of their way to say, we're excluding violence or crimes of violence from this reform. It was, it was always purposely a left on the side. Because part of the, part of the trade-off on, on some of these policies was if we handle nonviolent offenders in such a way, that gives us the capability to incapacitate violent offenders for longer periods of time. In Alabama, violent crime includes murder, rape, and armed robbery. It also includes drug trafficking and burglary of an occupied building. Bennett Wright says for now, 
these crimes are not likely to be included in future sentencing reform. Wright says there's no single piece of legislation that will significantly decrease the inmate population or fix all of the problems in Alabama's prison system. It's been more than a year since Ron McKeithen got out of prison. He lives in Birmingham now, where he works as a reentry coordinator and youth mentor. The victims of his armed robbery back in 1983 also live in Birmingham. One of them runs a corner store downtown. My name is Farooq Janjua. My name is Mansoor Butt. Almost 40 years ago, Farooq Janjua and Mansoor Butt were working at a different convenience store when Ron McKeithen and another man robbed them at gunpoint. Janjua says it all happened so fast, no one was hurt. They just took the cash uh, and uh, my small pistol from me. And uh, they left. Then we called the police and they filed a report and stuff. Janjua and Butt found out a few years ago that McKeithen was still in prison because of the crime. They couldn't believe it. Even my wife said that's too much. Yeah. He was unfair. That was not, he don't deserve this type of punishment. Their experience with the criminal justice system shows how much variation there can be in sentencing. Because during a different armed robbery in the 1990s, Farouk Janjwa was shot multiple times. The police arrested one of the guys who shot him. And that man served less time in prison than Ron McKeithen, who didn't fire a shot. Mansoor Butt says what troubles him is that the guy who shot his friend was eventually released on parole, but went back to prison. He says prison does not prevent crime. It's a school, it's a university of crime. But says he's seen many people go in and out of prison over and over again. For a 20-year-old child who put him in a jail for 20 years, he don't do nothing, he don't learn nothing, he don't make nothing out of it. You can put a person, 20-year-old, in a, some trade school for five years, He can be an engineer. He can have a job outside. But if you put him over there, when he come out, door closed on him 90% good jobs. So that's why mostly felon, they go back. Across the country, crime rates are down from their peak decades ago. But during the pandemic, some cities saw an increase in violent crime. According to data from the FBI, homicides in the U.S. increased nearly 30% in 2020. Since the country launched its so-called war on drugs, overdose deaths have actually increased, and illicit drug use continues. For people who go to prison, recidivism is still a problem. By one estimate, 26% of people in Alabama's prisons were previously released from prison and returned within three years. So the question is, can we break that cycle? Can prisons do more than just warehouse people? Prison officials say it's possible. My goal, ultimately, is to create somewhat of a programming institution. They say educational and religious programs can help. But inside prison, there's a different reality. You'd be surprised how well people that are incarcerated do what's expected of them to do while they're in prison. Nothing is expected of them. That's next time on Deliberate Indifference. 
This is Deliberate Indifference. I'm Mary Scott Hodgen. I wrote and reported this episode. Kate Smith and Gigi Duban edited the script. Meg Martin fact-checked the episode. Matthew Hancock created our music and served as audio engineer. Miranda Fulmore helped with production assistance and digital material. Help along the way from Audrey Atkins and Andrew Yeager. Website designed by Cayenne Creative. NPR Story Lab helped get this project started. Thanks to Debbie Elliott and Peter Breslow. And special thanks to Alberto Enes Romero. To hear all of our episodes, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to check out our website for more details. That's deliberateindifference.org. Join me next time for a new episode of Deliberate Indifference.